Welcome to the Field Goals Podcast. I'm Brandon Schultz. On Saturday, the Seattle Seahawks got down to their 53-man roster. Yeah, we know there's going to be some changes, but at least we have an initial 53-man roster to talk about it. And here to run down that with me, the managing editor of Field Goals, Mookie Alexander. Mookie, welcome back to the show. Yeah, it's it's good to talk about football. It doesn't feel like football season's happening in a matter of days, but here we are. I think the roster cuts, even without preseason games, has me thinking more and more that against all odds, we're actually going to have some NFL football. It may actually happen. I know I'm I'm planning out my schedule, and I'm going to be talking to uh, DW over at the Falcoholic, and and just the idea of setting up and scheduling a game preview podcast. It, it feel now it's starting to feel real. Yeah, it is. And it, uh, with Thursday's game with, with Houston and Kansas City, there are going to be some fans in the stands, apparently. But for Seattle's first several games, up until at least the Miami game, there'll be no fans. But uh, who needs them when we have all of our angry fans on Twitter or Facebook or some other form of social media? Yeah, there are a lot of angry fans out there. And and which group is the most angry, I wonder? Is it the fact that Jadevian Clowney, we finally seem to have some resolution with him going to the Titans at least we thought he was going to the Titans, and it seemed like a lock, and Josina Anderson came out and said, well, maybe he hasn't uh, decided just yet, but uh, it does seem like that is where he is going per ESPN, that he's actually texting teammates there in Nashville and, and saying he's excited to go there. Yeah, I, I imagine the uh, the brigade that was so eager to see this, uh, the Seahawks re-sign Clowney, it was a very faint hope. I, I don't think there was any legitimate indication that they wanted to re-sign him. And now it, it looks like he's going to head back to the AFC South, much to the chagrin of Texans fans, I assume, especially if he produces. I don't know who's going to be angrier, Seahawks fans, if Clowney has a big year with Tennessee, or Texans fans, because now they get to see Clowney twice a year, uh, you know, playing for their enemies. I, I would I would probably lean toward the Texans on that one, because I, I think for the most part, Seahawks fans had kind of gotten over it to this point of the season with it being the end of training camp. And the thing that was going to upset me is if he landed in that, you know, nine to $11 million range, because that, that just seemed like a number that you couldn't let him go for. It comes in a little bit more than that there. I've seen 12 million. I've seen a little bit higher with incentives, but if you would have told us 12 at the beginning of the free agency period back in March. I think Seahawks fans would have been ecstatic to see Jadevian Clowney coming back for $12 million. Yeah, the expectation was that, oh, Clowney is going to be one of the premier names in free agency. He's going to be one of the higher paid defensive ends in the league, you know, making at least north of $17 million, something like that. And that never materialized. The, the, the market value of Clowney was way overshot. And I think he's come to that realization too. So if it's reportedly $12 million, I don't think it would have been necessarily out of Seattle's grasp, but they obviously don't want to bring it back at that price. And it's a good deal for the Titans, I assume, because they've got a, another good defensive end in, in pass rusher, rather, with, with Harold Landry to uh, team up with him. But uh, on the Seattle front, I, I think the concern is less that Clowney isn't resigning and more that this defensive line is, it, it has to be one of the weakest spots on, on the Seahawks roster, if not the weakest position. Yeah, pretty clear. And I think part of the reason why so many fans were so upset over this other point too, well, it wasn't just losing the idea of losing another pass rusher from the team, but Mookie, usually the Seahawks, they rip our hearts out by cutting a player just from the preseason who's had an outstanding showing. And I feel like since they couldn't do that by cutting a, a preseason standout player, 
they just decide to cut one of the best stories from the last couple of years, Shaquem Griffin being cut. I I'm having trouble myself with this. It's it, it was frustrating to see that name come across it. In some ways I understand it. It's just because it's such a great story. It's hard to let that go. Yeah, it's been a real bummer. It's literally the first thing I woke up to when I when I turned on my phone is that Shaquem Griffin got released. So I'm not entirely surprised because the writing was kind of on the wall when Bruce Irvin and Benton Mayo got signed because Griffin, as just part of the linebackers group, he's already getting shoved out because of the Jordan Brooks edition, and they're not going to cut KJ Wright either. So I guess they also prefer Ben Burkirvan to to him on the special teams front. And ditto Cody Barton. So just on a pure pass rushing standpoint, Irvin and Mayoa kind of put Griffin on the bubble from the get-go. I hope that he can still be on the practice squad, but I think the talent is still there that some other team is going to try and pick him up. And if that's the case, man, it's just, I I had this sinking feeling in my stomach that on cut day, he would be one of the names on that list of who's not going to make the 53-man roster. But I just look back at the sack that he had his first career sack in the NFL and potentially his only career sack with the Seahawks. With him and Shaquille getting it in tandem on Aaron Rodgers and a critical third down in a playoff game, it, it, you couldn't write the script better than that. And unfortunately, uh, this is the the part where you got to remember, not every story has a happily ever after like uh, you see in Hollywood. And this, it, it's it just sucks. The thing that's going to make it even worse is if he ends up going to the Patriots or the Packers or... Uh, some team that maybe we have to see him in another uniform when we play them this season. Yeah, I, I would really like for that to not happen. I mean, luckily, they don't play Green Bay in the regular season for right. once, but they can end up playing them in the playoffs again. Uh, but I, I think that there will be some interest in Shaquem Griffin because he has talent. He's got the speed rush. He, he has the ability to get after the quarterback. And when he did uh, get some more snaps towards the second half of last season, he was quite effective, especially against Philadelphia. Um, so. Seattle had to upgrade its pass rush, but I was hoping that Griffin would get one more chance to, to show himself to be at least a rotational guy. And instead, that's not going to be the case. And the big issue for the Seahawks is with no Clowney, I think we could have we could have been fine with no Clowney if they had gotten Everson Griffin or done some trade for Yannick Ngakwe. The, the trade that the Vikings did for Ngakwe uh, is certainly something that I think Seattle would have considered had they not already given up a second rounder for Jamal Adams. Sure. Um, so man, the, the, the pass rush is going to be a really big sore point. And if by any chance, this defensive line is both bad on the pass rushing front and in run defense, like they were last year, that's what's going to fall right at the feet of, of, of both Pete Carroll and John Schneider, because this is normally the selling point for the Seahawks defense. Of course, you got the Legion of Boom, but the fact that their best years on defense involved getting after the quarterback relentlessly whether it's Averill or Bennett or, or, or me, Bane occasionally, or Clinton McDonald sometimes as, a, as an effective interior rusher, to go from that to this, it just feels so un, un-Carroll-like and un-Schneider-like. We thought that the Seahawks kind of learned their lesson with regard to the pass rush when, after the loss to Atlanta in 2012, they go out, they add Cliff Averill, they add Michael Bennett, and that really helped build that defensive line that was such a big part of the team that took them to two Super Bowls in a row and then you know, playoff games after that. Last offseason, you can't necessarily say that they didn't address it because they went out, they got Ziggy Anza, and then they traded for Jadevian Clowney at the deadline. Now, you know, Anza didn't work out, 
you can criticize them for making a move that that didn't work, but at least they they tried something. And it feels like in this offseason, Benson Mayoa and Bruce Irvin as addition don't quite add up the same way as getting Clowney and Anza even from the previous season. No, no, they don't. Clowney and Anza were kind of like a big high variance situation where, where you know you know that they're capable of producing at the very best and when they're healthy. But neither one of them was healthy for the full season. And while Clowney didn't produce statistically, he was consensus the best uh, defensive lineman on a very bad Seahawks bunch. Ansa just really never panned out, and he, he's he's still unsigned, I believe. This year, they're kind of going back to the classics, going back to, to I wouldn't even say old reliable, because Mayo it was, wasn't was even on the roster, on the active roster in 2013, I believe. I think he was on IR, on a practice squad, something like that, right. but he certainly wasn't getting regular snaps. That's what I remember. Yeah, he got a ring, he's, but he wasn't playing. Yeah, so with Bruce Irvin, even though I love Bruce Irvin, he is historically just kind of like pass rusher and not much else. He's not there to be this incredible edge setter. He's not there to be a run stuffer like Clowney is advertised. So where is the pass rush going to come from? And who who's going to step up to be a solid run defender? Because I am very concerned about how bad the Seahawks run defense totally collapsed last year. The pass rush, I think we could have expected just looking at at that front, and plus he had the injuries, but the run defense was very worrisome because Carroll, for for all of uh, all of the prowess that Seattle's had defensively on the the passing side in their heyday, the run defense has also been near the top of the league for a while. The pass defense was average at best, but the run defense was near the bottom of the league. Uh, so you you look at the, the the roster situation, and the best thing that you can hope for if you're a Seahawks fan is that the likes of L.J. Collier. Rasheem Green and Alton Robinson are really going to step up. You're going to have to get some significant contributions from recent draft picks like Collier and Green and then Robinson being a rookie this year. And uh, it's one of those situations where if by any chance the Seahawks do not have a good season or this defense ends up looking worse than last year despite major upgrades in the secondary, there are going to be some serious questions raised of, of Carroll and Schneider because I think you can only go to this well of cheap one-year contracts forever before you re- you realize you got to get better talent, and sometimes that better talent costs a significant amount of money. They were willing to do it for Adams, but normally you build from pass rush and back. It seems like Seattle's approach to 2020 is build from the back all the way to the front and hope that the secondary can help the pass rush. But it's a major issue that I don't think successfully got addressed this offseason. I suppose you could argue that's the way they did it when they brought on Earl and then Cam drafted him the following year and along with Richard Sherman. And so they did kind of build the Legion of Boom era team from from the back end toward the front. So if they're considering that it, or if they're just that high on Rasheem Green blowing up this year along with LJ Collier. But let's start along the defensive line because... You mentioned the run game, and when I look at these cuts, Mookie, Cedric Lattimore, Demarcus Christmas, P.J. Johnson, you have to expect that the Seahawks are going to sign somebody at defensive tackle. I mean, are they just going, they can't just roll with Jaron Reed, Puna Ford, and Brian Monet in the middle. Yeah, that that is way too thin, uh, a defensive tackle rotation. I think uh, Snacks Harrison is still on sign to get Marcel Darius, possibly. They, they have to make a move there. Like you said, this is an initial 53-man roster. So we, you're going to see, as we've seen pretty much all the time under Carolyn Schneider, a lot of tinkering over the next several days. But the depth here is not very impressive. Puna Ford is a very stout run defender, but he's he, he's not much of a pass rusher. 
Jaron Reed can do a bit of both. He was advertised first as a run defender, had a great year as a pass rusher the last year Frank Clark was here, and then had a very disappointing 2019. And Brian Monet, mostly a run stuffer, not much uh, to, to, to really go after the quarterback. So that, that interior front for Seattle is a potentially game-breaking liability, and that's even acknowledging the likelihood that Green and Collier are going to take some snaps on the interior too. Yeah, and if you do look at the edge position, that feels like where they do have some depth, at least. It doesn't feel like a strength of the team when you look at edge, but you have Rasheem Green, LJ Collier, Benson Mayoa, Alton Robinson, and then Demontre Moore, who it feels like out of that group that if they are able to upgrade either with Daryl Taylor coming off the NFI list uh, sometime this season, or if they are able to find an upgrade, it feels like Demontre Moore would be the first of that group that would probably go. Definitely. And he's bounced around even within the Seahawks lineup. I think was it 2017 that he was here, either 2016 or 2017. So I have hopes that Rasheem Green is going to have a breakout year um, because he he was, I think he led the, the Seahawks in sacks last yeah, year. Yeah, with four. What, three and a half? <laughs> yeah. yeah, with four. Oh, four whole sacks. That's one every four games. So, but beyond those, those sacks, I think he has shown some significant development from year two compared to what he was in year one, and uh, he spent a lot of his rookie season, as is tradition for recent Seahawks draft picks, spending that time on the injured list or being a healthy scratch. But uh, I think that Green, they're, they're trying to model his game after that of Michael Bennett. And if Green can hit that year three leap and become a guy who can increase his number of pressures and number of quarterback hits and get, say, six and a half to seven sacks, I think the Seahawks would take that 10 times out of 10. So I'm not expecting a single guy on this defensive line to get double-digit sacks whatsoever. And really, the only way that we're going to see Seattle's pass rush really thrive, at least to me, if Seattle starts actually building big leads on offense such that the other team is forced to pass. Right Now, if that happens, if that happens, and Seattle's comfortably ahead by two, three touchdowns, the other team's got to really press hard and, and, and keep throwing the ball and, and try to go downfield, longer developing plays, then the defensive line can pin their ears back and really get after the quarterback. And we could see some sacks just out of the, the numbers game of the other teams just got to pass more and you know it's a passing down. But neutral game situation, the expectation is not very high. And I never thought I would say that for a Pete Carroll team that there is no proven dominant edge rusher. Well, if the strategy is to get big leads going into the second half, then that's something that I feel like I've been pounding the table for over the years. I'd like to see that happen, but that remains to be seen. Coming up next, I want to go to the back half of the defense, probably the more exciting part of the defense, and talk about the depth there, who made the cut, take a look at any of the other surprising cuts from the team, and we'll do all that coming up next. Managing editor Mookie Alexander joining the show. We're breaking down the 53-man roster, the cuts, and, and who remains on the roster kind of getting into that back seven because I do think that that's the the exciting part of this defense and you talked about if they're able to to put some pressure on teams and and make them throw the ball more this is where you're going to see the benefits from this group Bruce Irvin's listed among the linebackers I, I probably could have included him along with the edge guys too but uh technically the the Seahawks strong side linebacker along with KJ Wright Bobby Wagner Jordan Brooks Cody Barton and Ben Burkirvan rounding out that linebacker group Shaquem Griffin, the only one cut there. I don't think there's really any surprises here. I guess it was just maybe whether or not Ben Burkirvan would end up on the roster considering his special teams ability 
and maybe some of his upside as a, a potential backup among this linebacker group. Yeah, I figure Burkirvan is, is still going to be behind even Cody Barton, and Barton has just totally disappeared as a name this entire offseason. It's like all, all the talk about the Jordan Brooks pick has made just about everybody forget that Cody Barton was not only drafted early last year, but he played quite a few snaps towards the end of the season as a result of the, uh, the Michael Kendricks injury. Right. But yeah, this is still a strong suit for the Seahawks. And if, if I'm bummed that Shaquem Griffin is cut, I'm relieved that KJ Wright is still on the team because I just had that other sense of dread that this is a contract year for Wright. This is the end of his two-year deal. And that part of the reason they drafted Brooks is that they were ready to, to move on from Wright. But I thought KJ still had a very stellar 2019 season. And it, it's good to see that the Wright-Wagner pairing is going to go on for at least another season. We'll see how many snaps Brooks is able to get and hopefully one of the benefits of, of getting Brooks is that Wright and Wagner don't have to be out there at, at such a, a high usage rate because what's happened over the last couple of seasons is Wright and Wagner have had to be on the field. Well, at least at least Wagner, yeah. because Wright has had some injuries, been on the field a lot more than we're used to seeing because of the close games and just the defensive formations that they've put themselves in due to a lack of depth at various positions. So the linebacker group, I'm still hyped. Wright and Wagner golden bruce Irvin is linebacker only in name we're not going to really see him just line up we're not going to see 2013 2014 Irvin. i think where he's willing to to play in coverage off the ball as often as he did at that time uh but barton and brooks that's your your second unit i don't think that's bad at all one thing with seattle the linebacker spots ever since they got Wright and wagner back in 2011 and 2012 respectively that has been a deep point for the seahawks and it continues one surprise came from the cornerback group. I think we all expected Shaquille Griffin, Trey Flowers, Quentin Dunbar, Ugo Amadi, and Nico Thorpe, I think, for his special teams ability to to make the, the fifth cornerback. But one name that a lot of Seahawks fans may not recognize, Lyndon Stevens, who was on the practice squad last season, ends up making the team as the sixth corner. Yeah, uh, for now, of course. Right. Because <laughs> once you get to like the sixth cornerback, then we're talking, yeah, you're, you're here on Saturday and then gone on Tuesday. But yeah, I think Lyndon Stevens has played some, some both nickel and outside. The nickel situation is still a, a fascinating spot because we know that Griffin and Dunbar are going to take the, the outside spots. Flowers, he could be in a big nickel package. I, I wonder what they're going to do with him. Amadi and Thorpe, if nothing else, are going to be great special teams gunners. Marquise Blair has apparently been a, a big hit in terms of his ability to play the nickel spot. Yeah. And Stevens, uh, he, he's had some good reviews as well. So I'm feeling better about the Seahawks' secondary situation, especially now that Dunbar has had his legal situation squared away, even with the potential suspension looming. I feel better about the cornerback spot than I did, say, a couple of months ago. And that, that a part of that is the Adams the Adams trade really opens things up for Amadi to, to switch from corner to safety or you know vice versa. I, I'm really optimistic that the Seahawks' secondary can do its part and really, they have no choice but to. Shaquille Griffin's in a contract year. He really has to perform. Flowers had an up and down 2019, and he certainly ended on a down note. I think that Dunbar is good enough to, to be a, a CB2, essentially. And um, there are a lot of fun things that Seahawks can do with their back seven compared to the front four. That's really where Seattle's going to hang the, the, the bulk of its defensive responsibilities, uh, that, that, that back end there. Yeah, and I think we may see, like you mentioned with Stevens, if if he ends up being cut and just to bring in another player, maybe he could end up on the practice squad. We haven't started to, 
to see the the practice squad names roll in yet quite yet. I think we'll end up getting that over Sunday and Monday and uh, to get an idea. And plus there's an expanded practice squad this season. So more potential for names there. I know you mentioned Shaquem Griffin is, is one of those guys that we hope ends up sticking around. But uh, you mentioned safety Jamal Adams. We talked Marquise Blair, the only other two safeties that, that we haven't mentioned. Quandre Diggs, obviously making the team. Lano Hill making the team, which he's been one that I think he he's going to make it based on his experience and, and probably some special teams potential as well, depth potential. And But he could be one of those guys who, you know, if they need to cut him, I, I don't necessarily see there being a whole lot of demand for, for Lano Hill elsewhere either. Yeah, they, he made the team just because there's just not enough safety depth per se because it's Adams, Diggs, Blair, and Amadi could play safety, but I don't think they're terribly keen on that. Adams, he can play just about anywhere. I, I'm sure that Carol and maybe Ken Norton are, are excited what they can do with Adams, and he could be like Cam Chancellor Plus as he's been advertised. Quandre Diggs, I noted, I think through the Football Outsiders Q&A, that the DVOA of the Seahawks defense when Diggs played versus when he didn't it is jarring, and and Diggs is clearly a quality uh, addition to the Seahawks safety group. I hope that Marquis Blair can uh, really make an impact in the second year because it, it felt like he didn't get a fair shake in year one. I, I thought he could have played more, but maybe the team felt that he wasn't ready and he wasn't up to speed on coverages and and other assignments. But yeah, Lano Hill really he he has experience, but it's not good experience. No. Uh, when when you're bad, pretty much every time you're on the field. The only thing you experience it is, is just being a liability. So if they cut him, I wouldn't be surprised. But if he's there, he is there strictly for emergency purposes. It's got to be those three, Adams, Diggs, and Blair, as your main people at safety. Blair is probably the one guy who I'm most interested in seeing how they're going to use him against the Falcons. There's one other guy in the secondary I wanted to address before we switch on over to offense, Mookie, and that's DJ Reed, who he was put down as an NFI designation along with Daryl Taylor. Uh, Colby Parkinson, the Seahawks tight end that they drafted this year. And Reed was interesting because initially he was on the 49ers NFI list. And then they chose to waive him with that NFI designation, I guess, hoping that they could uh, just move him as a, an injury designation for the full season and essentially sit him out the whole season. But then the Seahawks picked him up because they waived him. And now they put DJ Reed down as on their own NFI list. So it's very strange how that all worked out. Yeah, and I think Seattle picked him up because he he was a, a decent guy for for the Niners both as a reserve defensive back and also I I think he also uh, played special teams. I believe he was a return man as well. Yeah. So if, if he's going to be on the NFI list, you'd rather be on yours than than the rivals. So it's it's kind of a low key steal for DJ Reed to, to land on the Seahawks, and perhaps he's somebody that Seattle is keen on developing long term because I don't know where he's going to necessarily fit. Uh, on this year's team, because I think he ended last year with a, a, a significant injury. Yeah. Uh, pectoral or, or injury, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Pectoral. Yeah. That's, that's never good. So I, I think DJ Reed is, is one to watch down the line, just not necessarily this year. Um, and again, that that's, that's one of the pluses of, of the Schneider Carroll tandem is finding these hidden gems on other teams that you can just get off of waivers. And even if they're not ready to play right away, or if they're just going to be sashed to the practice squad or some other reserve list, they could have an important role to play down the line. Some other players not counting toward the Seahawks 53-man roster. Rashad Penny placed on the PUP list. Kyle Fuller suspended for the first couple games. 
and then Josh Gordon, who the Seahawks signed but uh, has not been reinstated yet. But that's got to come soon, right? Yeah, if Randy Gregory got reinstated, I hope that Josh Gordon can get reinstated. The only uh, issue we may see is that I think Gordon, when he had the last drug test failure, it was not only for substances of abuse, but I think he also had PEDs. So that might be a suspension anyway. And if that's the case, I don't know whether it be any aggravating circumstances would lead to a longer suspension or if because this is his first PED failure, it just be the standard four games. But whatever the case, I expect Josh Gordon to be on the Seahawks roster, 53-man roster, of course, at some point by, say, October. And when that happens, I, I'm really excited for the, the trio of Metcalf, Lockett, and Gordon, or Lockett, Metcalf, Gordon, if you want to be really specific about one, two, three, uh, because I think that is one of the strongest trios that Russell Wilson has ever had at wide receiver. Initially, I was thinking that the, the best five uh, on the field would be Chris Carson starting in the backfield. You got Will Disley, you got Greg Olson, and then Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. But if you're talking Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, and Josh Gordon, along with name your tight end and Carson in the backfield, that, that's a pretty good group too. Yeah, it is. So I would say, actually, looking over the years, the best receiving group that the CX ever had was probably that the 2012-2013 teams when you had Tate, Rice, and Baldwin, mm-hmm. and then eventually Curse. But you had Russell Wilson as a slightly worse passer overall. And you had Zach Miller, too, at tight end. Exactly. So uh, at the running back spot, they're pretty good with, with Carson, Hyde, and Dallas, and Homer. And that's even acknowledging that Penny's not going to be back for a bit, and that Carson is also coming off injury, and Hyde is coming off surgery. But I'm intrigued with, with, with DJ Dallas because I think knowing that Carson is a free agent at the end of this season and Seattle's not necessarily keen on just giving him $12.5 million a year, for example, Dallas could be kind of that Chris Carson replacement. His measurables are similar to Carson. And like he's, he's not a speed burner, even though he was a return man in college. Mm-hmm. But he runs with power. He breaks tackles. I, I think that Dallas, if not this year, certainly in the next season, could be... Seattle starting running back before all we know. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he has been one of the most hyped guys out of training camp. And it's one that I just, until I see him myself, I don't think I'm ready to, to say he's the next big thing on the roster. But they do have a lot of options. I mean, Chris Carson, if you look at the deals that have been given to running backs lately, Joe Mixon getting 12 plus a year, just with all of the players who are hitting the free agent market next year. I just, I have a hard time with the Seahawks. I I could see them saving money by not bringing back Chris Carson next year. So they're going to have to do something. And with Rashad Penny coming back at least potentially some point this year, I do wonder where that cut may come from. Is it going to be a guy like Travis Homer? I think one of the the more surprising cuts for me was the fact that they actually cut fullback Nick Ballore from this final 53. Yeah, I won't be shocked if by Tuesday he's back. (laughs) (laughs) They they, they just won't let go of Nick Ballore, and it's clearly for the special teams because he hardly gets any snaps at fullback. I know. They rarely run that bit uh, with Ballore, although he did catch a touchdown against Arizona last season, I believe. So, yeah, he's got the the rare distinction of of intercepting as a Seahawks quarterback. That was Boykin, though, I think, when he was a linebacker for San Francisco. And catching a touchdown from Russell Wilson as a member of the Seahawks. But yeah, Ballore, I think, will be back at some point. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a good point that Seattle, are they really going to keep five running backs? Because even if Ballore does return, he hardly plays in the offense. But Carson Hyde, Dallas Homer, and Penny, 
somebody's got to be the odd person out. And it might be Homer, and I, I hope he isn't because Homer has value as a special teams guy. And I think he can be a good receiving back, especially on third downs. But uh, running backs, of course, as we know, are quite replaceable. They're quite, it's a quite a fungible position. So um, that's something definitely worth monitoring over the next uh, several months because the running back situation, I think, is set. But the health issues of Carson and Penny are very much worth monitoring because Penny, that's his first real serious injury. But Carson, he has had noted injury problems dating back to college. So yeah. long term, if Carson can't finish this season either, I don't think there's any way to resign him because they're not going to risk twelve and a half million a year to somebody who's is injured as, as often as Carson. But if he can stay healthy and produce again, then we're going to see a significant shuffling of running backs, say, in 2021, because Hyde's on a one-year deal. There's there's almost no way he's coming back next year. Based on the injury issues alone that we've seen with this team in the past years, if we get to a point where there's five healthy running backs and we're trying to decide which one might have to go, that, that feels like a lot better problem to me. Yeah, it's a lot better when they were down to, to, to having to sign Marshawn Lynch off the couch. Uh, right. I mean... Not that I'm complaining that Marshawn was back, but the fact that it got to that point tells you all you need to know. I think they're kind of doing this for both running back, well, not both running back and receiver, but it seems like all three positions, running back, receiver, and tight end, because you've got Disley, Olsen, Hollister, and uh, Luke Wilson, and that's with Parkinson on the NFI list. Now, when Parkinson comes back, I think Wilson's the odd man out, and then they'll cut Luke, uh, and then Techno Thursdays get shut down again. (laughs) But... uh, Receiver, Lockett and Metcalf, there shouldn't be any serious injury issues to worry about, but Lockett did get banged up last year, even while he did play. And Metcalf did have a, a significant neck injury in college. Dorsett's dealing with an injury right now. Ursua is hanging around. David Moore, I think, had some injuries in training camp. And then there's Freddie Swain. And I'm glad that Swain made the team because it looks like he could be Lockett's replacement at, at, in kick return and punt return, for example. But they, they put themselves in a position where once guys come back from injury, or in Gordon's case, suspension, they are not in such a bad hole that they're like one key injury away from having no depth whatsoever. I think the depth for Seattle is better than it has been in recent seasons at most positions. Uh, I just wish that they had better depth at the real key positions like in the trenches on the offensive line and defensive line. Absolutely. And maybe the surprise cut coming at receiver was when Paul Richardson was let go. Penny Hart, Cody Thompson, Aaron Fuller, you know, any one of those couple guys uh, could end up on the practice squad. It does feel like once Gordon comes back, they're going to probably have to look at either Ursua or depending on how things are going with Swain. David Moore did take a pay cut from his restricted free agent tender to sign a $1 million deal. And so it seemed like once that happened, that was maybe the writing on the wall for Paul Richardson. I, I think the uh, sign that Richardson was ready to to be let go was when carol made the comments i think it was either friday or thursday it was thursday's uh training camp practice where he he said it's been tough Mm -hmm. for richardson meaning he implying he wasn't really in shape and he's having a hard time getting into first team offense so a combination of those two things and as much as i liked what paul richardson offered in 2016 and 2017 when he could finally stay healthy and and make an impact on the passing game the odds of him being able to come off of another season ending on injured reserve, which was the case when he was at Washington, and then to just sign on a week's notice and then make the 53-man roster, I think that we were a little bit overly optimistic that Richardson would just get the spot there. So 
Richardson is off and gone. Penny Hart and Cody Thompson also being gone. It's another sign that, and I, I think somebody noted this earlier, Seattle has not kept any of the undrafted free agents that they signed this offseason, of which Cody Thompson was one of them. Penny Hart was at least on the practice squad last year, but Fuller was another UDFA. They didn't keep him. So one of the drawbacks of no preseason and not having actual game action against other opposition, so forget these mock games, is the UDFAs and the late round draft picks, like the sixth and seventh round guys, they really suffer. And I think that the retention rate for UDFAs and seventh round picks must be at an all-time low based on roster cuts throughout the league. And the Seahawks are no exception, which is unfortunate because one of the positives of, of, of the schneider Carroll era is how often the Seahawks have been able to find that undrafted free agent gem or that seventh round gem. And they're not going to really have that opportunity to do it this year. Yeah, seventh round pick Stephon Sullivan cut from the tight end group that was deep, as you mentioned, with Luke Wilson making the team as the fourth and Jacob Hollister on his restricted free agent tender. Looking at offensive line, they keep 10 players on the offensive line. Here's another area of the team where I think we could see some movement early on, especially with Justin Britt. Uh, He came in for a visit with the team and still no signing yet, but you have Dwayne Brown, Cedric Abwehi, uh, Mikey Potty, Phil Haynes, Ethan Posick, BJ Finney, Damian Lewis, Jordan Simmons, Brandon Shell, Jamarco Jones. You have a, a breadth of players who played some starting snaps for the Seahawks. My biggest concern right now with the offensive line is what do you do if Dwayne Brown gets injured? Because Ooh. he just turned 35. He did have injuries last year. Now, I, I would assume that Abwehi and Jamarco Jones would be the options at left tackle. And if it's Abwehi, Seattle's going to lose those games because he's just not a good enough tackle. And then Jamarco Jones, we saw him play at left tackle. I think he's much better suited for guard. Yeah. So the guard depth, I think I'm all right with. Upati, they should be able to start. Posick likely going to start at center, but can play guard. Finney, the same. He could be a center. He could be a guard. I'm kind of wondering if he's still going to be on the team because he just lost that competition out of nowhere, it seems. Phil Haynes, he looked competent in his, his limited playing time last season. And that was, of course, towards the tail end because he, he had been hurt much of the time. I'm intrigued the most in Damian Lewis because it's not often Seattle drafts any offensive lineman and they're ready to start seemingly day one and they're widely praised. So, right. so Lewis, yeah, it, it's like there's no way this can happen. Really, in this economy. Yeah, we, we've seen Justin Britt start and that did not go great. We saw a Fetty start and, you know, we dealt with, I, I feel like, the same level of play for about four years. So it's uh, generally been frustrating when a rookie starts on the offensive line. Yeah, basically, we've, we've, we've had, it took three tries to get Justin Britt to find the ideal position for him <laughs> right. uh, to, to play on the line. And with Lewis, we know he's going to replace DJ Fluker at, at right guard. He seems like a mauler and he could open up some running lanes. And I think one of the big things for the Seahawks running game, more than anything, is Carson's work has made a lot harder when he's having to break tackles behind the line of scrimmage to get two yards. So if there are clear, clearer running lanes, you'll get more of those chunk plays that uh, I think the Seahawks have kind of made a meal out of over the last couple of seasons. But Jordan Simmons, I think when he is healthy, he can be good, but he's very rarely healthy. So that's a problem. And if Seattle has to make a cut, I wouldn't be surprised if Simmons is one of them. Brandon Shell at right tackle. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if he's really a big upgrade over Fetty. He might even be an arguable downgrade, but that's kind of a wait and see moment. Yeah, if you can say that somebody's a downgrade from a Fetty, then you, you're pretty down on that position. 
Yeah, with Shell and and Fetty's apparently getting nice reviews at guard for Chicago, and you're just pulling your hair out if you're a Seahawks fan because that's exactly where Fetty started his rookie season before they moved him out to tackle. But uh, it's not like the Bears' offensive line has been anything impressive no. over the last few years. So, but it's all relative as far as what is uh, high level offensive line play. But Jamarco Jones is the wild card to me because there was hope that's as I think a fifth round pick. He could be an eventual starter. And to start your rookie year injured right away, that sucks. And then the next year, he, he just he had some good moments and bad moments. But the difference between him at guard versus at tackle is so jarring because I don't think his feet are quick enough to deal with speed rushers. So I think he's best suited for guard. And it goes circles all the way back to my point about Dwayne Brown. He's 35 years old as of last week. And if he goes down, that is a really bad sign for the Seahawks because, of course, you can't just say it, most teams don't really have some amazing backup left tackle. No. That, that, that sort of thing just doesn't happen. But with the way Seattle's offensive line depth has shaked out, the left tackle depth sans George Fand, who's often in with the Jets, it, it, it's a really tenuous position. And it's I don't want to imagine the worst case scenario if something happens to Brown. And they still got to think about Brown's future or the replacing of Brown like as early as 2021, because at 35 years old, even though he's not shown any signs of serious decline, for those guys at that position, you can get old really quickly. Well, I think even we remember Walter Jones at the end of his career, it just seemed like you know he was such a solid player at that position for so long, and then he got hurt, and then that was it. So it's, I mean, once you start getting up into the upper 30s as a tackle in particular, um, Andrew Whitworth playing for the Rams at 38 is, it seems like an outlier. So definitely a problem spot to watch. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Whitworth's play just fell off a cliff this year. Absolutely. And just from looking back from a historical perspective, you remember that season before Brown came in at left tackle and the revolving door that was there. And, you know, we saw Fant at the position and before he got hurt. So it was such a big thing for the Seahawks to be able to, to trade and bring in Brown and even though they they lost a second and a third rounder in that trade, it does feel like that was one of those ones that was you can look back on and say, well, that was worth it. Yeah, it, it was worth it because it provided some much needed stability. You know, Russell Okun had that level of stability on the Seahawks offensive line, minus the part where he, not once did he complete a 16 game season for Seattle. He didn't have a single t- a single season here, which he played all 16 games. But after Walter Jones had retired, that one-year period, the, the Mora year, that was dreadful. Uh, just looking at who was, was playing at left tackle, I think they tried to shift Sean Locklear over to the other side. Complete disaster. And then after Okun left, you're, you're left with, uh, who started, Bradley Saul? Oh, I yeah. Mean, that, that was an all-time of a mess. I, I think it was the Cardinals game, that 6-6 tie, that ushered in the George Fandera because Saul got injured, and he was just getting beat like a drum by Chandler Jones. So uh, Dwayne Brown was a much-needed... Uh, trade, especially after Audiombo wasn't cutting it either. Yep. So at, at least they, they realized that they needed a, a proven name at left tackle and Dwayne Brown fit the bill, but he's up there in age and I would like to see them really make a push next season to to at least find his replacement because if Russell, we've been blessed that Russell Wilson has not had any serious injuries throughout his career, but I imagine that if he does get one, it's most likely going to be something involved in the offensive line collapsing on the left side if there's no Dwayne Brown and the replacement is just bad. Yeah, and it's not like left tackles exactly grow on trees and without a first-round draft pick next year, 
it's one of those spots that we're going to have to watch, hope for the best this season. And it's a lot like the defensive line as well. Going into the season, Mookie, it just does not feel great having to put a lot of hope on the offensive line and defensive line. Generally, those are positions that you want to be strong. Yeah, the cliche is that the games are won in the trenches and probably the two weakest spots, and I think I even said at the start of this uh, podcast, the two weakest spots in terms of overall quality are fortunately in the trenches. So, (laughs) you know, we're going to have to hope for more Russell Wilson magic and that the linebackers and the, the, the secondary, they live up to the hype. And, and if that's the case, I think Seattle can skate by with the lack of great offensive line play and great defensive uh, line play. But if that doesn't happen, we could be in for a long season. Mookie Alexander, managing editor of Field Goals. Follow along at Field Goals. Check out fieldgoals.com. We'll have more articles on the way. Be sure and watch as uh, practice squad announcements are made. Any moves as well as we know. This won't be the final 53. Mookie, appreciate you coming on and breaking it down. I cannot wait for the Falcons game. Maybe, uh, maybe just maybe Seattle will build a 28-3 lead and then they'll show the Falcons how to actually hold on to one. <laughs> I, I would feel good with our, our back seven that we can make that happen, especially the way that Matt Ryan likes to throw the football around. So that, that could be good. I, I, yes, I, you've set up the exact scenario that I'm hoping for come week one. Well, be sure and subscribe to the show, sbnation.com slash NFL podcasts. I will have a preview show with David Walker of the Falcoholic coming up in the next couple days. So subscribe and be sure and get that in your podcast feed as soon as it's out. And until next time, go Hawks.